Hey, everybody. This is Coach Conrad Geringer, and this is the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today, I am speaking with Miguel Maddox. Miguel is a working triathlete, and he is also a coach for us, specifically a swim coach. And he also has a very popular YouTube channel with his partner, Jenna, called Jenna and Miguel. And they have another YouTube channel called Freestyle Swim Labs. Yeah, that's you know? it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, definitely check him out. But today we are going to chat about his his recent training. So just for some background, for those who don't know, Miguel is a, a very, very good triathlete. Last year, he won 70.3 Florida. He was the first amateur. Uh, he was fourth in his age group at St. George in the world championships and multiple time triathlon champion. And he has some, some big goals this year. So we want to talk about his, his recent training and also discuss this year, the annual plan, talk about what races he's targeting. And we'll discuss the training that we plan to do leading up to, to each of those races all of this will culminate in him racing at the 70.3 World Championships in St. George, Utah again. And we'll look to not only duplicate the, su the success of 2021, but exceed it. So Miguel, welcome to the podcast. We are in the thick of training. We are 10 weeks away from your first triathlon of the year, which is 70.3 Oceanside you are going to do that race and there will be a handful of other working triathletes there. And obviously you have some, some big goals there, but maybe discuss your recent training, kind of what we've been focused on. And we can also talk about that in the context of your low priority race coming up, which is a 5k run. Yeah, definitely. You know, everything that we will talk about today, I'm sure is just revolving around what we learned from 2021, 2020, every year I've been racing triathlon, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I'm someone who has an outlook on every race as not as like a finish line or an end, but as an opportunity to learn and grow. So I think with that mindset comes great potential. Having this ongoing like formulation of thoughts and and analysis around every race that I did last year, and some of it is very easy to depict. I think one of which is I'm a swimmer. That's why I'm a swim coach for you guys. But um, I never had a run background. I'm basically learning how to run, and I'm like three or four years into that journey. I'd say only three years into that journey of learning to run. There's a ton of potential there. Last year was the first year that I was actually passing people on the run. And that's just a testament to how hard we've been working on that discipline and really just, you know, not even how hard we've been working on it, but just like how much volume I've gotten in <laughs> because right. the majority of the work has been very easy volume just to teach myself the proper mechanics and the, you know, as you put it, the, the economy to just get up and run um, efficiently moving forward because it still is early in that development only three years it's you know we we need to figure out how to run better so that's kind of more of an obvious one and then there are like the smaller things of just like these very specific tactics on how to race better i remember we did this time trial over 2020 when there were no races and i got out on my time trial bike and just biked 56 miles and what did I go? I, I biked around a 206. I didn't realize like what that meant in any context because I hadn't done a 70.3. You know, I held 300 watts, I biked a 206, and that was just me going out and having fun on my new time trial bike. And putting that kind of effort and that speed into a race is a completely different story. So I think like as we're looking ahead, that's another thing that I want to be focusing on is just like the tactics of racing, all of these little things that we've figured out as it could be room for improvement. That's what we've been working on this winter. So my training so far has been very run focused. Um, a lot of easy days in between key run sessions. So been getting out on the track 
and doing some harder intervals. I've been doing combining that with tempo runs only a day or two apart from those key intensity track sessions and more than anything, just staying healthy, working every day to stay healthy in doing all of this, um, which is so key for running as I'm figuring out because in the early days of my running, I would try to see what I was capable of every day and I would get hurt, you know, once a quarter. So that's, that's definitely been the focus. And then the other focus has just kind of been a, a mental aspect of like, how can I put together the perfect race? I mean, there's no such thing as the perfect race, but in my mind, I want to, you know, mentally rehearse and train my mind and my body to execute a, a race to my potential. Because as we kind of learned with different parts of races and different practice time trial sessions, like we can go pretty fast. We just got to figure out how to translate that to actual racing. Yes, that is a, a great way to look at it. Just for some additional context, you are basically a full-time triathlete now, along with the YouTube channel. So you have the luxury of, of training high volume. So you train like a pro, you have the ability to do that, and you have the discipline to recover well. Over the last year or so, I would say that there has been a run emphasis. When you started, you obviously had the swim background, your ankles were, were, were floppy, and it was tough to ramp up any volume at all, even easy volume without getting injured. And that's why just easy running is important for building durability as well as strength training and, and all that. Over the last couple of years, you've been able to increase that volume, and that has been the focus. And we've seen some very, very good gains. Like you said, you were passing people this year in, in long course racing, but we're not just talking about passing, you know, the, the average age grouper. We're talking about passing the top athletes. Obviously this year we expect to see some really, really fast run splits. And in the winter so far, we've been continuing the, the run block, including more intensity. So we know that you're durable haven't dealt with a, a run injury in a while because you focus on the little things, you know, massage, rolling, Normatec boots, strength training, seeing a physical therapist, i.e. your mom, who <laughs> was a great yeah. one. <laughs> well, I, I, I definitely want to point because, you know, thank you for mentioning that stuff because I think, you know, when I say like, oh, I'm doing the little things and keeping myself healthy, it's it's a lot. And it's I want to stress the importance of that because it's like every day after before a run or bike or swim session, it involves, you know, rolling out your back, rolling out your legs, you know, getting in the Normatec boots, getting nutrition, the right nutrition in before your workout, the right nutrition after your workout. I do have access to a great physical therapist and she's 20, 30 minutes away from me. So, you know, scheduling appointments with her once a week for just proactive physical therapy is key. If you have access to any type of version of that, highly recommend because the last thing you want to do is wait to see a physical therapist for when you're actually injured. You'd rather take care of that stuff, the little things, because there are always little things. Despite how much you do, there's always going to be a little ache and pain. Just get it taken care of before it turns into something bigger. And then the other huge thing that that's kind of been transformative to me is just the value of sleep. And I've always recognized the value of sleep, but almost in the context of like, yeah, I need to get in bed at a reasonable hour and sleep until I'm, I'm good to go. But just honing in on like this daily ritual of winding down at eight, I'm in bed by eight 30 or eight 45 up out of bed by 4:45 to do my first workout. So I'm getting eight hours of sleep a night. And then after a hard key intensity workout, after a good meal, I'm taking a two hour nap <laughs> every mm -hmm. day. And again, this is like one of the luxuries I have by, by going full-time in triathlon and uh, the YouTube business that we're running but it enables me to have the the flexibility here to do these things. So I'm getting 10 hours of sleep every day. I'm getting eight hours at night. I'm getting two hours during the day. And I'm basically breaking up my days into two different days. So like I'll have a hard workout in the morning, 
I'll sleep for two hours. Mm -hmm. I'll wake up. I'll have another hard work on the afternoon. And it, it honestly feels like two different days, which has been huge. Um, and we've been looking ahead. We've, we've talked about the value of having a day off every week. So Mondays are now my day off, which means we're kind of consolidating a lot of the intensity and volume onto the same days because we're taking what we've been doing over seven days and we're doing it in six days, which means that structure and kind of break up into two different days has been increasingly important. And just being able to manage myself and my time and my body and my energy day to day is very important. Two great concepts that you kind of described there. One, obviously sleep and we uh, sleep we know is is very important i know you're using sleep eight one of their products right and that's like a, a sleep tracker and maybe it controls the temperature of of your bed or your mattress when you're asleep yeah we um we're using eight sleep uh and yeah they have mattresses and mattress covers so if you need a new mattress you can get the whole mattress if you have a good mattress you can get a cover but yeah it basically just changes temperatures according to how you sleep. So if you're, if you sleep really hot and wake up sweaty, it'll cool down your mattress and help regulate your temperature throughout a night of sleep. It also gives you feedback on how you're sleeping, the consistency of your sleep, because that's also huge. If you go to bed at 845 and wake up at 445, you're going to feel better every day. If you do that every day, like if you change around your sleep too drastically day to day, it, it kind of, um, appreciates the value of it. So it, it kind of monitors and keeps track of that. If you want, you can check out our code. Uh, it, all the info is on our YouTube channel. Yeah. So what you, you have a discount code? We do. We can get you a hundred dollars off eight sleep. It's actually been a great product for us. Also, Jenna and I sleep very differently and it, it has two different sides of the mattress. It can regulate two different temperatures or two different bodies in one bed, which is pretty neat. Fascinating. This concept of temperature regulation when you're asleep, you sleep deeper and quality of sleep that you you get is is better if if you're sleeping at the optimal temperature. And oftentimes that temperature is is cool. So one of the principles, and so we read Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker a few months ago as a book club book for working triathlete. And one of the recommendations was keep a cool room along with blackout blinds, keep the, the room dark, um, like you're saying, go to bed at the same time. But this temperature concept is interesting. I'm hearing anecdotes of, of people who are using it. The impacts or the benefits are unique and maybe greater than what you might think of initially. One interesting an anecdote I heard, I think maybe Tim Ferriss talked about it on, on his podcast, but how if you drink your body temperature, there might be a spike in your body temperature and a, a, a sort of related to a glucose response in the middle of the night. And he's found that if he lowers the temperature of the bed lower than the normal after he drinks a lot, he'll actually wake up with no hangover or maybe uh, a less extreme hangover. <laughs> but also, apparently, the, the quality of sleep, if he drinks, is just better because you can track all of this. Like You can mm -hmm. punch in, I had four drinks or something uh, this evening, and then you can track your sleep quality. If he, uh, if he drinks a lot, he just lowers the temperature, and then it can help him. And so, so we'll see. That's an N equals one <laughs> anecdote, but it's, it's interesting, and we'll see what, how that yeah. develops. Our code is freestyle. That'll get you $100 off of eight sleep. But I think what we're trying to say is like sleep for everybody has just been a concept of like, yes, that's important. But as with everything we're going to talk about and what we have talked about so far, there is a rabbit hole for everything. And it's so cool how much we've learned just in the past decade about these different things as it relates to performance and health that it's like, it, you know, we encourage everybody to just go learn about these things. And if you have mm -hmm. trouble sleeping, even just a little bit, you know, maybe after just like a drink or two or whatever it is after a hard workout, the information is out there to kind of diagnose what's going on and how to improve. And 
I think all of this stuff that we're talking about, eight sleeping, one of them, you know, whoop being another, like these different things to learn about yourself. There are studies out there to learn about this stuff in general and how it affects performance. But the key takeaway is just go learn about this stuff because it probably has the benefit to make you better at what you're doing and to help you achieve what you want to achieve. Exactly. Exactly. And it's about learning how to apply or figure out what's actionable. What are the actionable takeaways from the data that you're tracking? Like if you have a whoop, that's excellent, but how, how do you implement changes? How do you harness the data? That, that's always another important thing. And, you know, constant glucose monitoring is becoming more common now. And I think there's a lot of benefits there, but you have to kind of run controlled experiments with yourself and, and figure out, but all, all of this is probably, uh, we can have three other podcasts talking about this specific thing. I guess it's also super fun too, to yeah. like kind of treat yourself like a little science experiment. Like, I don't know, just kind of have fun with it and, and learn learning is always fun. So you know, it doesn't have to be like this regimented, like serious thing. It can, it can be right. like naturally pretty fun to figure out. Even if it just inspires you to do the things that you already know you should be doing. Yeah. Um, one other thing, so, so you talked about sleep and then you also talked a little bit about your schedule and how structured it actually is. So people often hear of people who have supposedly like more flexible schedules than them and they think that they they have it easy. However, having coached you know hundreds of athletes, it is often the case that those who actually have more responsibility day to day or those who instill structure to their day every single day and are disciplined uh, in adhering to that structure, they're the ones who are most consistent. So, so even though you theoretically have a flexible schedule, you know, not to say you aren't working really hard on your other ventures like coaching or video production, creating content, things like that, you are disciplined enough to, to wake up early to execute a, a, a truly structured schedule. And that is something that I think a lot of triathletes, especially time strap triathletes would benefit from doing. Like you have to create a structure for yourself and work with a lot of athletes. And many of them claim they don't have enough time or they're just overwhelmed. And oftentimes that's valid. There legitimately are athletes who we work with who work 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week or more at times. However, many of the athletes saying this, maybe typical nine to fivers, it's more that it's not a priority for them to, to get the work in. And that is perhaps that's, that's reasonable. You know, it's about priorities. And, and so with those athletes, we often try to peel back the, the, the volume so that it suits what they are able to do slash what they are willing to do, I would say, because there are certain, there is a limit to the, the sacrifices that one should make for triathlon if you have a family, if you have work, et cetera. So you always try to find that balance. But I think that people do not optimize their schedules enough. And it is pretty darn easy to find an additional hour each day if you're willing to create a schedule and stick to it so that you can have the day that you want to have. I don't know, Conrad, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I have no fucking time. <laughs> Zero. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I have a flexible schedule, but that just means I'm I'm not employed. I don't have a manager dictating any part of my schedule except for Jenna. Um, I guess she she's my manager. But like we we're growing a business. We're literally right. growing a business from scrap. I'm not making any money. And it can be very, very stressful. And like, that's why I need to regimen my schedule. I need to wake up early. I need to do the things that are most important to me in my life. I, I know we didn't want to get too much into goal setting. My outlook on goal setting is kind of looking at the year holistically and figuring out who I want to be and how I can get there through triathlon or whatever I'm doing day to day as a vehicle to get to who I want to be. And I think for me, I want to kind of live more urgently. I want to control the things in my life that are most important to me. And for me, it's becoming a professional athlete. I want to be the best athlete I can possibly be. And the way I need to live my life is to be more urgent when it comes to that. We spend a lot of time sitting around 
kind of waiting for things to happen or like, oh, like I have this important thing I need to do, but I can also do that tomorrow. And for me, one of the examples that I'm going to use is waking up at 445 to do the hardest workout you have planned for that day. That gives you no reason to wait around or wait for something to happen. That makes something happen immediately, the first thing in your day. And it sets up everything else that day to be more productive. It's like I got the hardest thing done and I conquered it. Now, what can I go conquer next? And again, like I have to do this. I I think Jenna and I have this conversation about like, what is a full-time job? Oh, I don't have a full-time job, but every minute of every day is extremely busy. I mean, it's about like what you want to spend your time doing. I could very easily not be training as much. I could very easily not want to take the naps that, and people are going to kind of laugh at that because it's like, oh, he gets to take naps. But like a lot of the time, I don't want to lie down in bed and waste two hours because that objectively is a gigantic waste of time. I'd rather be making a video or doing sit-ups, getting stronger, whatever. These are things that are necessary to keep me alive and, and keep me working towards what I want to be doing and who I want to become this year. That makes complete sense. And as, as a full-time coach running, working triathlete with, with, uh, with Derek, it's sort of a similar, similar thing. When I left my, my corporate job, you leave and you think you're going to have all of this extra time to do things. (laughs) However, if you're passionate and you're, you want to, really be successful in a domain, positively impact a lot of people, you know, in the case of a a coach, you end up working harder and more than if you were doing something that maybe you were less passionate about, i.e., you know, a day job of, of sorts. And typically you're doing it for, for less money, but the trick is if you're passionate about it, you're just willing to outwork everybody and you're willing to do a lot of the little things which add up to a lot of uh, time investment. At Working Triathlete, the, the one-on-one coached athletes, you know, it's, it's unlimited communication. And I encourage athletes to text you know, the, the, their coaches if, if they have questions or, or email them. So, so we're always on. And uh, I think that's maybe a difference between Working Triathlete and other other coaching groups, but we have different tiers also. I mean, there are a lot of excellent triathlon coaches out there and many of them offer this tier that, that we're talking about. But, you know, I think it's important if an athlete truly wants to progress, they, they need to have, you know, decent access to their coach with, within reason. But my point is that, you know, there are no weekends. If you want to be the best at something and, and do something amazing, you have to structure your day. And this concept of luxury of being an entrepreneur or being in control of your own destiny Yes, that is appealing. However, it does not mean you're working less. And yes, the schedule is flexible, but many times I'm working at 11 p.m. at night <laughs> because I am also a fan of time blocking. And uh, when I'm deep doing deep work and have momentum, I don't stop, you know, no, no matter what, because I have to do a lot day to day. But it is interesting when we think about these things. And the grass is often always greener, but it takes discipline to create a schedule and to stick to it. And uh, one thing I've been thinking a lot more about recently is this this idea that when people are looking to, say, add or find an additional, say, two hours a week to do anything, whether it's to spend time with family or to train, don't try to find two hours. It's like, try to fi- find five times that. So, okay, where can I find 10 additional hours in the week to train? And then you realize, oh, wait. I can actually find 10 hours. So two hours is nothing. So then it, it makes it a lot easier. Or one, one rule like, like in business, like you're raising capital or something, you know, a smart investor might be like, okay, well, how do you increase revenue 10 times in six months? Which is an absurd thought. And nobody expects to increase revenue 10 times in six months. But if you like stepped back and you really thought about, okay, like how do we increase revenue 10 times in six months? Then you might see, oh, wow, there are actually a lot of things we could be doing that we're not doing. And it makes the task that might be more realistic. (laughs) Like you probably do get that question a lot. I get that question too about like, how can you find more time in the day? And I think like backing up and evaluating the question in the first place, like you're not 
physically not going to be able to find two more hours. And it comes back to the topic of, of urgency. Like you have to make two hours. Like you have to evaluate what is valuable to you. And this is something that I didn't mention. I also live with my partner, Jenna. I would like to keep my partner, Jenna. You would like yep. to keep your wife, Alex. Um, these are the other things that we're balancing, but I think it's like prioritizing what is important to you and making that the most urgent priority. And if you really need yeah. two more hours to accomplish what you really, really want and who you, you know, leading to who you want to become, you'll be able to make two hours easily, but it, you have to make it. You're not going to find it. It's not going to appear in front of you waking up with that kind of urgent mentality of like, this is what's important to me. Even if it's just like, I need to reconnect with an old friend. That's something that's very easy to be like, well, I don't need to do it today. That can happen next week. But like, if it's important to you, if that friend is important to you, you're going to pick up your phone and text them right now. It'll take 10 seconds. We should also clarify that or add that deep rest is important too. It's it's not like you can't optimize every little detail of your life. This constant obsession with optimization. I think people have a lot of room to, to optimize their lives, certainly, and to integrate more efficient or productive habits. However, sometimes you just need to not do anything. Sometimes you need to collapse on the couch with, you know, your, your partner and your dog and, and watch some Netflix and eat ice cream and, you know, pass out. <laughs> it's uh, the body does need that. There are things you can do that won't steal thunder from the most important things in life. Specific things that we're looking to actually name things rather than speak at a high level. You know, I'm thinking about things like social media. People spend a lot of time on social media and they end up hating themselves after scrolling for 45 minutes. They don't even like what they're looking at anymore. But it's like, because the dopamine pulses have, have gone away. So yet they, they've wasted 45 minutes there. They could have done something way more productive in that time. You, you kind of have to train because that that's going to happen to everybody. That's happened to me. That's happened to you. Like you kind of oh, yeah. have to train yourself to, I mean, live under the mentality of like, I, I would like to be this type of person and this is yep. what I'm going to do to get there, but also like live without judgment and, you know, mm -hmm. hating yourself for eating a bowl of ice cream or scrolling through social media for 30 to 45 minutes accomplishes nothing. Right. right? So I think like kind of teaching and training yourself to, to not, be judgmental about your actions, but to learn mm -hmm. from them and move past them, become better because of it. Because that's that's always going to happen to everyone, even the best. So your race schedule. We're in sort of a run focused mode. It's a lot of general prep when we think about swimming and cycling training. Cycling training, most of the intent over the last few weeks slash months with you has been uh, mostly zone two riding, steady, developing efficiency at zone two, building that aerobic base. We do know that you respond very well to intensity on the bike. You know, when you threw down that good time trial split, 56 mile time trial split, you're doing a, a lot of intensity on the bike. Certain people respond to it. Certain people respond less so. We know that you respond well to that. We're sort of capping off this, this run block you're going to do a 5k race in a couple of weeks, you know, get, get a mark down and, and then we'll, we'll pivot and Oceanside is about 10 weeks away. So we're, we're on the cusp of sort of entering this 70.3 specific block of training. The goal there is to up the cycling load, just to build cycling fitness. So increase the volume a little bit, integrate a little bit more intensity and as the race approaches, a lot of the, the long rides especially will contain longer intervals at race pace. So just, just under sweet spot, but I'm also a fan of doing sweet spot stuff during long rides and, and you definitely respond well to that. But the main thing is building efficiency at, at race pace and developing this, the discipline that we've been uh, put on maintenance mode, which is cycling. Oceanside, it'll be a, a great race. After that, what's, what's the next thing? which I'm psyched about. It's been a while since we've raced and it's going to be even longer. Oh, this is a question for you, actually. Um, prior to Oceanside, you mentioned I'm going to do a 5K race and we talked about doing some type of road run race um, this winter. Why a 5K? And I think we've discussed this a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like, you know, because I'm a, turning into a 70.3 specific athlete, Olympic distance athlete, 
and obviously I'm training for things longer than this, but, but why are you having me do a 5k? It's, it's good to develop different dimensions of fitness and 5k is, is definitely higher intensity than what you'll need in, in a, uh, half marathon during a 70.3 or a 10k during an Olympic tribe. But part of it is you're training for a 5k, you're still developing incredible fitness and we need to develop leg speed. We're doing some more VO2 workouts running, and that's just going to increase your, your zone five <laughs> performance. So it is just beneficial, especially now early on to kind of build this, this engine boost aerobic capacity, boost your, your threshold metric. And then as the race approaches, we tend to get more specific. So we build the engine first and then we develop efficiency at, at race place, race pace. So obviously if you're targeting a long course race, as the race nears volume increases, you're spending more time at race pace. You're teaching the body to, to do well. You're improving metabolic efficiency. You're teaching your central governor to be okay. Kind of spending a long time at at race pace and we shouldn't discount that psychobiological model of training right now targeting the 5k it's at the end of the day whether you race a 5k or say a 10k it's largely irrelevant the training is is a little bit different but it's it's similar enough to that the benefits long term will will be similar earlier in the i guess it was the fall you know we kind of set we set some specific 5k goals i would say that the 5k is probably the most popular run distance or race distance. A lot of people have done a 5k and it's, and, and you want a good 5k PR for confidence and to have the ability to say, well, yeah, I have a, my 5k PR is you know, 1550 or whatever it is. And then when you toe the line, you, you, you know, that it's just a good benchmark and a goal that we set. And sometimes goals are arbitrary, but they instill a purpose to training was we, we set a certain time goal for, for a 5k. So that's another reason why we're targeting a 5k. One additional reason you can just recover faster from a 5k than say a half marathon. Oceanside is not that far away and we don't, there's no need to interrupt the build, um, by doing something longer. That isn't to say that a half marathon eight weeks before 70.3 is a terrible idea because it isn't necessarily a terrible idea, but in your case, it, it's worthwhile developing some speed, some run speed. And then once you develop run speed, you can, that's useful. It's going to make 70.3 effort, you know, call it 95% of your, your threshold pace to feel a lot easier than it would otherwise. If you're running 515 miles and, and you're learning how to do that well, all of a sudden when you're running whatever, 540 miles, 545 miles during a 70.3, your body will not freak out at the pace. You have to train harder than race pace <laughs> if you want race pace to feel doable at all. And, and that's one issue I often see, I think, with Ironman athletes so oftentimes. So, so the, the most important training for an Ironman is, is certainly, I, I would say, the volume and just time in the saddle. But you need to spend some time above race pace or else you hop on the bike and depending on what the target intensity factor is, but you know, 0.74 or 0.73 which may be an upper front of the pack age grouper might target during an Ironman race that might feel hard if you're not used to doing extended intervals during long rides at say 70.3 pace, which might be 80 to call it 83, 84% of FTP for all of those reasons. It, there's, it's good to develop all dimensions of, of fitness, um, whether that's speed, high intensity, or eventually as the race approaches, uh, more of that developing efficiency at zone two or zone three in the case of a 70.3. That's very true. I was actually to that last point too. I was having a conversation with like an ex pro triathlete and this was before worlds last year. And he, he gave me some advice. Like if you get on the bike and like that 70.3 effort feels hard or stiff or you're struggling to keep up with it, do a one minute vo2 not a vo2 interval but like do a one minute threshold interval like do something that'll get your heart rate up and get your legs pumping and it'll probably make that that 70.3 effort feel a lot easier and i'm sure like people have had this experience on the indoor trainer where you're doing like you know an hour of z2 hour of active and it just feels 
really terrible. Like it just starts to feel really crappy after a while. Um, and then if you do like a little bit of a harder effort and then come back to that Z2 or active, like it feels easier suddenly. So I, I think that's a huge reason why, you know, the 5k or training for the 5k is important because it's just, you're reaching into that extra gear to make these other gears for the rest of the season feel more comfortable and, and attainable. This concept of high intensity work, uh, both on the immediate benefits of that, i.e. during a warm up, you, you want to do, for example, strides or, or pickups, even before workouts, especially before workouts, before high intensity workouts, you have to go hard because it will enhance subsequent exercise performance. Um, you know, it, it increases ATP turnover, oxygen, your ability to take in a lot of oxygen, oxygen uptake kinetics, and it'll activate the muscles or it will activate your, your nervous system. It'll enhance the central output of the motor neurons and increase, literally increase the, the electrical activity of the, the spinal cord. The benefits of high intensity stuff, both on the day of, it's important, but also you, the more you do it in training, the easier it's going to be to tap into it. And the more efficient you become at all levels of, of, of training or all intensity levels. So you want a good nervous system. You want a tight nervous system. And this is why we do strides often in pickups or even in the off season, we'll spend a little bit of time at intensity, or if we're doing a long ride, if it's mostly zone two, we'll do some 20 second pickups near sprint efforts just to stay in touch with this. So all of this is important and it's, I'm going to start saying increasing my electrical activity. It's <laughs> going to, if someone asks me why I'm doing something different or weird, I'm increasing my electrical activity. <laughs> Race schedule. I wanted to get back to that. So Oceanside is April 2nd. And then the next event that I'm doing is I'm going out to Nashville to do the working triathlete training camp, which I guess we probably want to take a moment to say that this is open to everybody we encourage everybody to join because Jenna and I are going to be there. All the working triathlete coaches are going to be there and it's going to be a party and it's going to be lots of learning and training, just a good time. It's going to be awesome. And like you said, it's open to everybody. All the working triathlete coaches will be there, but, but it's like I said, it's open up to, to everybody and you and Jenna are, are going to be there. But if anybody wants to attend you could just Google working triathlete training camp and you'll find it. We also have a, a page on the website. Um, I think it's under working triathlete university, that tab, you can learn more about it and sign up. We try to keep the price low. So it's accessible to a lot of athletes. That's going to be super fun. Jenna and I are actually, we, we worked out a little, uh, a deal with our local Toyota dealer. This is the first time we're saying anything about this, but we're going to be renting a Toyota and, and driving it across the country to Nashville and documenting our trip and the camp and everything. So that's going to be amazing. And we're going to live in Tennessee for a month in an Airstream. That's all the plan right now. We got a lot of logistics to figure out, but we wanted to do something fun and crazy that time of the year. So there are working triathletes are all over the world, but we have a pretty high density of athletes in Nashville and we have group workouts each week and you know, we'll have probably three or four group workouts each week. And I'm sure that you and Jenna will, will attend a number of those. So it'll be fun. It'll be a fun training camp, sort of extended training camp building up to 70.3 Chattanooga. So definitely looking forward to that. And speaking of which, we are planning to at some, well, uh, in the middle of that trip, um, after camp, we're going to drive down to Texas and go to the multi-sport national festival, which is the inaugural event put on by USAT. And it's four, four days of just these different types of triathlon events because there are these events like the aqua bike, uh, I don't know, everything, every combination of these swim, bike, run events. Um, so there's like the run, swim, run. I, I don't know what any of these are called. There's uh, <laughs> the super sprint uh, mixed relay um, on one of the days there. So it's basically this combination of these different events um, put on by USAT 
kind of hosting it as the national championship for each of these different events um, over the course of four days. So we're going to head down there. Our plan is to race every day. So I'm going to try to find the most suitable event every day and see what we can do. We're going to have some working triathlete relay teams, which is going to be a lot of fun. If you're listening to this, encourage you to check that event out. It's going to, it sounds like it's going to be a ton of fun. A few weeks after that, I'm doing 70.3 Chattanooga. So that's kind of the reason why I'm living in Tennessee for a month, because we'll have the working triathlete training camp. And then about a month and change later is 70.3 Chattanooga. So that's going to be kind of a, a key spring, early season race to hone in on and, and see what we're capable of doing. Kind of two macro cycles happen and that's, that's the first one. And then you'll have a, a recovery period after 70.3 chat. The next a race will be USAT nationals. Um, but right before that, three weeks before that, you'll do the legacy try as a, as a tune up before nationals, which the legacy try is a sprint try. Um, so you should be able to recover from it quickly and, and, you know, see where your, your high-end fitness is. That's typically the most fun part of my season. As I kind of reflect on the last few years of triathlon, kind of having that mid season, like sprint and Olympic distance focus is a lot of fun kind of removing. I mean, there's still going to be a, a hefty amount of volume, but challenging yourself to get faster at something I find is a lot more interesting. It's a lot harder too. Um, than figuring out how to just simply go longer. And I think as triathletes, we're very tempted by the Ironman, <laughs> the, by, by Ironman dangling this kind of like grandiose Ironman event in front of our faces. And if we've done a half Ironman, what's next? Oh, I got to do an Ironman. My outlook on the sport of triathlon did start out that way. It was like, I want to do an Ironman. I still haven't done an Ironman to date. I really still have zero intention of doing one. Um, I'm hoping that doesn't change. Uh, maybe it will someday if I find a good enough reason to, to kind of like, you know, do an Ironman well. Um, but right now it's like, it's fun to get faster at something. And again, I live for the challenges in life on like how um, something really difficult can make me better and stronger. So I think like, you know, figuring out how to get faster is, is very tempting. So that mid season block of like, you know, doing as well as I can at the legacy sprint triathlon and then Olympic distance and sprint USAT nationals, like that stuff is a lot of fun if you're hearing this, it's encouraging to figure out how to get faster. And I yeah. think healthy, it's healthier to do that than to figure out how to race for 10 hours. <laughs> exactly. And it's more accessible also. So when we think about the time investment, yes. it, I mean, it is possible to <laughs> certainly get through an Ironman and, and do it on low volume. Uh, there are certain ways to do that, but you know, there's a greater risk of injury when you're doing that and, and you're simply not going to be optimized. But we also can't discount the value of building a big engine before embarking upon an Ironman. I'm talking about building a big, big engine, not only within any given macro cycle, but also year over year over year. It is often the case that the best athletes at an Ironman will, are also among the best athletes at the shorter stuff, i.e. 70.3 Olympic, even sprint stuff. And this is especially the case in the age group contingent. And I think a lot of athletes, so volume is essential in, in an Ironman. And, but uh, most people can on you know, a certain number of hours per week, that is substantially less than say 20 hours a week, would be able to maintain the traditional intensity factor for, for an Ironman, the traditional recommendations say, which might be, you know, for an upper middle of the pack athlete, maybe they can hold an intensity factor of say 0.7 for the bike. And then, you know, 0.75 for the run and the swim. It's, it's more related to swim fitness and volume, how fast they can run a wall. So just how good are they at swimming? But that 0.7 intensity factor it, it's obviously hinged to your functional threshold power. <laughs> so if your, your FTP is higher, you theoretically should 
be able to hold a faster all-day pace. Uh, ideally, your all-day pace raises with your FTP. However, you do build efficiency over time. The more volume you do, say at Ironman race pace, right around you know LT1, you'll end up burning more fat to carbs. Your aerobic zone will just increase. You have the ability to to hold that power so easier. And and maybe a well-trained athlete could hold you know even 75, 76% of FTP in an Ironman if they really optimize that kind of zone two, that Ironman pace. But it, it largely depends on fitness and also uh, how fast somebody is, is actually cycling. So how long are they going to be on the bike? But you know, my, my point is that getting fit, i.e. building high-end fitness, boosting threshold VO2 max, you will theoretically have a higher all-day pace, assuming you build some efficiency and endurance at, at race pace. And it takes probably less volume than I think a lot of people might realize to have the ability to, to build that race-specific fitness for an Ironman or 70.3. I remember last year at USAT Nationals, um, we've kind of built a little friendship with with the guy who won it, Ben Stone. Um, he... Uh, you know, and I think we share the swimming background connection. We were both mm-hmm. like one, two out of the water and he slowly just put distance on me the whole race. And he ended up winning that race. And I was chatting with him after, and it turns out guys training for an Ironman, like he's, he's focusing on the Ironman distance, but he won USAT nationals Olympic distance. A couple months later, he went and I, I forget what Ironman it was, but he won an Ironman. He won the amateur field at an Ironman. Um, and I, I told him after that, I was like, in my mind, like you are the age group athlete of the year. Like not too many <laughs> people can do that, but you know, after reflecting on it, if you're determined in the sport and passionate about doing well, you're covering all facets of, um, of speed. <laughs> you're, you're covering, um, you're covering everything. You're, you're just a multidisciplinary athlete and you're, you're figuring out how to be good at what it all entails. Um, I think one of the benefits of coming from a swim background, and I know we'll talk about this maybe at, at another podcast is just knowing the importance of variety when it comes to being good at something. And I think as swimmers we're taught to, even if you're very specialized, let's say at like, I'm, I'm a 200 freestyler and that's it. You are going to train butterfly backstroke breaststroke. You're going to train sprint distances. You're going to train distance. It all makes you a more well-rounded swimmer. The more well-rounded swimmer has greater potential to do well at their specific distance. And I think it's the same for any sport as we're looking at triathlon as a whole. If you're able to be a more well-rounded athlete, as it encompasses the entire sport of triathlon, your potential is going to be greater than the one who's like, I am an Ironman focused athlete and that's all I want to do well at. And that's all I'm training for. Your potential is just naturally going to be lower than, than the Ben stones of the world that are going out and winning the the sprint distances and then winning the Ironman distances. So I think it's, it's all important. I mean, we can even look at the, the pro field, look at Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden. I mean, they arguably had two of the greatest Ironman performances ever this year in their first Ironman. They did it off of, you know, a lot of faster racing. Now, obviously they are training specifically for Ironman. I mean, they had a very specific Ironman specific block before their respective Ironmans. And they spent a lot of time building efficiency at Ironman pace. And and I know that they, they really focus on uh, improving metabolic efficiency. I know Christian, he's mentioned he wants to burn a really high percentage of fat to carbohydrates at 300 Watts, which is right around Ironman race pace for him. And you have to dial, you have to dial that in. And obviously these guys are spending time. They're training like Ironman athletes should train. However, they also in a very recent time frame, <laughs> we're focusing on the Olympic distance. And at the end of end of the day, all of these races hinge on aerobic fitness. These races are aerobic endeavors. They're not really anaerobic. And, uh, but the body adapts to whatever stress you, you put it under. Um, so obviously the foundation of a good training plan is, is 
time and, and really zone two. We all know the 80, 20 principle and you know, it's, it's pretty accurate. I mean, it's tough to violate that <laughs> no matter what and, and remain healthy. So I feel like the 80, 20, you don't even really need to strive to make it happen, but the 80, 20 principle is valid. I.e., 80% of your workouts should be easy zone two or below. If we're looking, if we're using a five zone training intensity model or, and 20% should contain intensity. I typically think of intensity as sweet spot and above. So upper zone three and above, right? Just under threshold and above, because those workouts take a little bit longer to, to recover from. It's about developing the different training zones. So we think of like what Christian and Gustav are focusing on. They're trying to get super, super efficient um, right around Ironman pace. So they're obsessed with LT1, which is like the, the first threshold. You have LT1, which if you look at a graph and, and you're tracking lactate concentration in the blood, the curve starts to go up. And then when it hits LT2, which is basically your functional threshold power or threshold pace, then it goes up even even faster, that lactate concentration. And uh, the distance in between LT1 and LT2 can be trained also. You can widen that. Um, you know, some people have a, a more narrow zone four. And if you're an Olympic distance racer, you need to make that zone four bigger. And you need to do specific training to do that. And it also has to do with, you know, if we think about one's power curve, if one is weak, they have a low five minute peak power relative to peak 20 minute power, or peak 60 minute power. Well, we know that they're probably lacking in zone five training and maybe doing some more VO2 workout that will increase their say peak five minute power. So it's more in line with, you know, a typical or, or fit athlete who's, who's more balanced. Um, cause you know, sometimes you have to increase your aerobic capacity if you want to increase your, your threshold. So you have to look at all these things in training and obviously you can do it in a lab, but we can also get at it through, you know, like a 4d type threshold test, or we just look at athletes, how are they doing at VO2 max workouts? Sure. They can hold sweet spot for 20 minutes, no aerobic decoupling or anything like that, but then they can't really put out 105% or 110% of their functional threshold power if they're doing four by four minutes with four minutes rest. It's like, okay, their aerobic capacity is, is lagging behind everything else. This all, for me at first, at least, when I was figuring this stuff out, um, because it, it really is like more specific to the bike than anything else, because you're indoors, you're looking at watts, and you can really get very granular and structured about, about this stuff. And it was, for me, kind of confusing at first. Um, but... I think as you do it more and more, the most important part about it, like you, every, everyone knows what this feels like. You just kind of have to recognize it when it happens. Like, you know, what that transition from like, you know, Z2 to like threshold to above threshold, you know, how your body reacts and you know how difficult these different zones can be. And you know, how long you can hold this stuff. Um, so just kind of like recognizing this stuff and analyzing what it feels like and analyzing how difficult certain workouts are. Like if, if you find like, you know, an hour at Z2 on the bike difficult, like there's something you can work on from that. If you're the type of athlete that can get on the bike and do and crush those VO2 workouts, like great. Um, but like, there's something that you can derive from like, well, maybe I need to work on like the capacity for, for working on this lower intensity for longer. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm definitely less like scientific minded than you, which is why we're like such an incredible team Conrad. It's because like we can approach this stuff more from like a, I don't know, a feel and philosophical standpoint and combine that with like what this actually means. Um, but I, I think like for me, it's just recognizing how this stuff feels um, and kind of learning from, how it feels and, and figuring out what you need to work on from that. Um, so I don't know if that helps anybody too, that isn't as scientifically minded as I am. Yeah. You know, and I would say that at the end of the day, you have to listen to your body, which is kind of what you're talking about. You have to go by feel. You have to learn what your body can handle, what it can tolerate, especially with running. Like you have to go by feel, keep the easy runs conversational, even tempo runs. You, you have to, 
key off of RPE over, you know, obsessing about holding a certain pace, um, you know, key, look at, you want to triangulate, look at pace, heart rate, uh, RPE, but I would say for tempo runs, a lot of athletes would probably do well to just ignore their watch and just go by feel. Um, you can check intermittently, but don't, don't obsess because the idea with tempo runs, you want to be, you know, right at threshold or just under. And if you're above it, you're, you're just kind of wasting, uh, your, your energy and the recovery costs are higher than they need to be. You're not reaping any additional fitness benefits. So, uh, point being a lot of triathletes, especially nowadays, I think they are relying maybe too much on metrics and data and they're losing sight of listening to their bodies and you have to listen to your body for sure. Um, yeah. I actually got a watch recently that is nothing more than a watch. <laughs> it mm -hmm. tells time and I'll take that out on my easier runs every now and then. If you prescribe a 45 minute run, I'll be like, all right, let me put on this watch. So I know yeah. to come back after 45 minutes and it'll tell me nothing more than that. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's, and like tempo runs, it's kind of the same thing. Like I turned off the mile splits for a tempo run a couple of weeks ago and it, cause my body was sore and aching. I didn't want to look at the pace and it turns out like I looked at the pace afterwards and I'm like, Oh, like it was, it was fine. Um, but like we definitely, there are times where we harm ourselves when we, you know, flood this information into our system and we're better off just like going for a run, enjoying the view, enjoying what this kind of like unique type of tempo pain feels like. Mm -hmm. Um, and just kind of like understanding this stuff from like a very instinctual perspective, as opposed to like, Oh, my pace, my heart rate, you know, all that stuff, which again is important. Just knowing the time and place to use it. Right. And eventually, so beginner athletes, it makes sense for them to kind of maybe pay a little bit closer attention to, to the data and intensity zones, just so that they learn what say threshold pace actually feels like, but experienced athletes, they should take the liberty to not obsessively track everything for training peaks or for Strava. Strava honestly is, it has become, I think a negative thing for a lot of athletes, uh, if we think of swimming, a lot of athletes, they just want to post a fast swim average swim pace to Strava so that their friends look at it and they think, oh, wow, it's fast. Or for an easy supporting run, they just want it to show, you know, seven something instead of, you know, eight something. So they'll pick it up and that's counterproductive. Um, but, you know, I mean, th this week I didn't wear the watch to any of our group runs and I went to a track session with no watch to, and, and part of it was to just get across the idea that you don't have to obsessively track everything, have it show up on, on, uh, Strava or training peaks. Like we can get pretty darn close to, uh, we, we do want to track training stress, obviously in training peaks. However, we can estimate it pretty darn closely, you know? Um, so if you don't want to track pace or distance on your Garmin watch for an easy run, that is probably productive. Go out, run easy for the prescribed amount of time, and then just mark the workout as complete. You know, we don't have to track every single easy supporting session. Sometimes it's freeing to do that. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, people or athletes need that mental freedom to get back to the basics, enjoy the run, enjoy moving their body, be engaged with their surroundings, being in touch with their body. And, and I think this is especially true in the pool. People using watches, if the goal of using the watch is to post it on Strava or something, not going to feel the water as well, in my opinion. They're going to fight the water to try to swim the interval as fast as possible. And in doing so, they're just going to be fighting the water and actually might not swim as as fast as they would if they just focused on swimming efficiently, moving through the water well, and being more engaged with that proprioception aspect of it. Uh, so yeah, it's a good consideration. This is, that's a good, good point to bring up. Free yeah. yourself from the ball and chain of the watch. <laughs> yeah. And even better, like if, you know, taking pride in 
how easy or how slow you're going on days. Yes. You know, it, it means you're working hard. It means you're doing the right thing. And honestly, like if we, that's one of the goals that Jenna and I want to get across with our YouTube channel and what we're working towards. We want to make triathlon just more accessible and less like egocentric. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we can create this environment of like, it's okay to go slow. It's okay to go at your own pace as long as you're just enjoying this journey and the journey, meaning there are going to be just as many, if not more downs than ups, like embrace that and show it because the more people that do that, the more people are going to look at this sport and be like, Oh, like I can do that. I don't have to be on. I don't have to be running five thirty tempo mile splits every time I go out for a tempo run. I had a tempo run yesterday that was kind of like, in my mind, pretty disappointing, but it was like, okay, it means I'm working hard. It means I'm stretching myself and I'm, I'm building the right type of fitness. Like I'm doing things right. And, you know, I think that's important to show as well. Not, you, right. you know, I think like hiding it is okay if you want to keep that stuff internal and which is fine. But like, I think the better thing to do even is just like show that you're enjoying every part of this journey and not just the the highlights. Um, and I think, you know, I, I wanted to get back to kind of the, the wrap up of my race season um, and maybe wrap this up. I don't know if you have anything else, but like, I think part of my goal is to, you know, kind of tying this all together is just like, enjoy this journey as much as possible. I think what I've craved in the last couple of years And what I think I've craved in terms of like getting better as well is just the simple idea of racing and getting out and showing what I'm capable of. And I think, yeah, that will make me better at this sport, but I think like, that's also why we do it. And Mm -hmm. I think I'm one of the triathletes. I'm one of the athletes that got caught up in like this, um, it's kind of like, well, undistracted training is good training. And if I can kind of like limit my racing to the key races and have these big blocks of training, I will be a better athlete and I will be more ready to nail my big races. And I think what I've figured out over the years is like racing is very good for you. You're not going to learn how to race unless you actually get out there and race. Even if it's a very (laughs) poor showing at a race, everyone's going to have bad races and I'm prepared to have bad races. I'm going to mentally rehearse like the things that can go wrong and how I can learn and deal with those things. I'm also going to prepare for having really good races and how I can learn and, and, uh, you know, move past those as well. Um, but also just like, how can I have fun with this sport? And for me, it's like, you know, going on road trips to Tennessee and doing a bunch of events and doing, um, you know, this legacy sprint before nationals and just getting out there and racing as much as I can, as much as my body will allow, you know, that's where you kind of create these memories with your team and your friends. And, um, you know, I'll be on a new team this year. I'm, I'm fully in the working triathlete community. I'll be racing with the working triathlete kit and just having that pure focus on like helping acknowledging that community as much as possible. I'm really looking forward to, and and you do that, you optimize that at races. I think all of this to say, I think for me, beyond like the urgency to be the best athlete I can, I think it's just how can I enjoy this journey as much as possible? Because I want this to be a sustainable part of my life. I don't want to burn out. And I think burnout comes from training, overtraining and becoming a stickler about like pace and performance and optimizing certain races. But I think like making it sustainable means like target things during the year to just make it fun. And I think for me, it's racing a lot. So I have a very busy schedule, but I'm not looking at that as like stress. I'm looking at it as like, this is going to be really fun. It's going to be a really fun year. Let's be safe. Let's actually make these races happen. COVID's uh, not fun right now. Let's do it. It's going to be fun. Excited about this year. Oh yeah. Me too. Me too. It's you're right. It's triathlon racing is it's about not only great performances, but it's also about creating good stories and memories that make you a richer, richer and more interesting person. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to 2022 and seeing 
obviously what you do in races because you do want to go fast, but also it's about creating those memories. So it's going to be an excellent year. And like, like we talked about earlier, people should feel free to come out to the camp, which is bound to be fun and show up at races and say hi to uh, Jenna and Miguel. We need like some sort of like fan question service with your podcast, because I'm sure after this, as like we're talking about my season and everything, I have questions like, well, what if I, like, why am I doing this? What if I want to do this differently? Um, if you have any questions about like my training, about Conrad's coaching, about my coaching for swimming, like reach out Conrad working triathlete has a website. You can easily reach out there. We're both very active on social media. I love answering questions about why I'm doing things a, a specific way. So we are very accessible and we do very much enjoy talking about this stuff and, and how it can apply to the rest of the world. Don't hesitate to drop us a line. Uh, you can reach me through the working triathlete website, submit a contact form. You could DM me on, on Instagram. It's coach underscore Geringer or just search Conrad Geringer on Instagram. <laughs> and you know how to use social media. You got it. Yeah. yeah. Just <laughs> y'all can figure it out. Google it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great chat and uh, looking forward to, to 2022. Let's do it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for listening guys.